imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Total Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal with your host, Kevin Neutron. Broadcasting from a secret underground lair in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A gigantic middle finger to everything that is rocking about music, rock and roll, and corporate power. The thing is, though... If you don't laugh, you're going to go on a killing spree with shot and nails. Confidence of a hero or a fool, I wasn't exactly certain which. Could not be more professional. It's That's like a science thing, right? Indeed, 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 it is a science thing. It is a science place, it is a scientific fact that we are all up in your face. It is once again time for the one, uh, the only, Protonic Reversal. Welcome to it. And today we've got a lovely, lovely guest. Someone I've been wanting to have on the show for quite some time. Uh, Mr. Martin Atkins. Martin Atkins of PIL, Pig Face, uh, Killing Joke. Jeez, uh, so many great acts, uh, so much knowledge. We're going to be talking to Martin shortly. I'm going to play one of my favorite PIL songs first. We're just going to get right down to it. Uh, real quick, thanks to everyone for sharing the episodes and all the recent love for the show. It's always appreciated. Sharing, subscribing, all that stuff. It's how uh, people find out about it. And uh, patreon.com slash Reversal if you want to get the episode sooner. Okay, so we're going to play Flowers of Romance. We'll be back with Mr. Martin Atkins. Yeah.
that's Flowers of Romance off of the Flowers of Romance record by one band known as Public Image Limited. And with us now, we have none other than Mr. Martin Atkins. Martin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. How you doing? Very good. Uh, how was your... Yeah, it seems like you're making very good use of your quarantine. You've had a lot of Zoom calls that are like living history situations and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I started doing... Um, uh, what's his name? The drummer from uh, Talking Heads, Chris Grants, has a book coming out, and he had this post like four weeks ago, like, "Well, I'm canceling my whole book tour. That's that." I'm like, "No, this is an opportunity. Just start doing zooms and do a hundred zooms to twenty people, and then that's two thousand people you just connected with." I'm like, "Oh shit, I should start doing the same thing." So <laughs> you're, I start- right, you're giving giving good advice that you should take yourself. Yeah, it takes me a while, you know. And um, so I started doing events tied to the 40th anniversary of the first PIL tour. Um, And this Saturday we're doing Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland. Um, And then we'll do San Francisco. And then the four days in L.A. where we did American Bandstand and Played to 10,000 people at the Olympic Auditorium. I mean, that was fucking 1918. Yeah. Um, And that's 1980, not 1918. It's it's a ways back, to be sure. And uh, people send me tickets and little stories. And and it's, it's great. I'm putting everybody in the book. It's not just my book anymore. There's a name for it. I don't know. Somebody... Uh, somebody sent me a, the name of what it is when you accumulate all of these memories from people, and I've forgotten that name, but that's what it is. So, well, so we're doing that. Yeah, we're also doing workshops like, and stuff too. It, it's funny that you mentioned that too, because it was the PIL on American Bandstand appearance slash moment that led you to being on this show and it's, it's a very roundabout way because I was talking to my friend secret and explicit Dale Crover of the Melvins. And we were both uh, talking about how that's like, like an iconic uh, moment in punk rock where the weirdos got to like do something kind of cool at a greater level. Connected. That's, that's crazy. All right. Yeah. And so that led to, you know, a a butterfly flaps its wings in Indonesia. And then next thing you know, uh, we're talking. And so uh, Dale sends his best by the way. Oh, yeah, tell him I said hi, too. But here's what I really love. So, uh, Dale, and who's the other guy in the Melvins? Buzz Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're like, oh, they love that album. So, and they're going to write some piece. So on one side of the page, there'll be this piece from the Melvins talking about the significance of blah, blah, blah. And then then I I stumbled across a DJ who used to work... (laughs) But holiday camp in Bognor Regis, England, wow. and was fired for playing Flowers of Romance over the Tannoy speakers in the morning. So it's just there's Fantastic. all of these little moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so. Oh, yeah, wow. And, and like, that's a wild. I, 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 oh, go ahead, sorry. No, I wondered how we got connected. That's cool as hell. Yeah, yeah. It, and it just went, it's actually one of those things where, like, a fan, a fan, like, 
brought up the point that you're actually, uh, you know, not that difficult to get a hold of and you should be on the show. And I was like, hey, you know what? I thought about that some time ago. I never followed up. Anyway, it's it's that part of it's not very interesting other than the fact that it's just that this show is, you know, very freeform. And, and it was it was funny to me that it's like, oh, yeah, if we hadn't been talking about that American bandstand appearance in like, what, 1980, where you guys, you know, have this like really transgressive thing. Johnny's running around the the uh, the set and everyone's dancing. And then you you guys both have your your moment like your moment where <laughs> you get talked to because he dick clark comes over and realizes oh i gotta talk to these guys too and wobble goes uh you know what's your name wobble the jaw wobble which i always think is an amazing moment <laughs> well the, the more amazing moment um was in the dressing room really when, okay um, tell me more well so dick clark comes in the dressing room like oh i'm I'm, are you broadcasting video or we are we're do, we're experimenting with doing the video uh on instagram live it's a, it's an experiment i can i can if you're gonna make a rude gesture or something i can turn it off <laughs> well i was just i was just like dick clark did this and i showed you what he did and i forgot if it's radio yeah it's, so, it's largely so, radio. Clark, so you're making like a head a head motion yeah okay. dick clark comes in the door and like you know and if somebody could have said ta-da you know, he would have said, ta-da, right. you know, and, uh, hey, and uh, Wobble says, uh, I'm Joe Wobble, uh, who the hell are you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, brilliant. He had no idea. Uh, I, I tell people all the time, my recollection, we're walking down, we're on the ABC lot. Okay. And we're walking down the road with studios to the left and right. And uh, American Bandstand was filmed in the studio next to the studio where they filmed uh, 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 a show called Soap, which was kind of a, a somewhat uh, cultish yeah, comedy Yeah, I, I, I remember show. it very well. In fact, I watched it at the time, but even though I didn't understand any of the jokes, but my dad thought it was hilarious, of course. Right. And, and I remember, I think I actually said out loud, ooh, this is, this is where they film Soap. Right, right. You know, smart we're show. Just, we're Very just smart show. The, another, uh, we just thought it was just another TV show we would do. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't realize it was so, you know, prestigious, if you will. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, okay, and and that's, yeah, because American Bandstand, it's it's a. Uh, iconic for being well it's associated with rock and roll uh, basically it's associated with all these different elements of rock and roll but you know largely kind of came to american culture and the type of culture that it embodies seen as in a lot of ways unfairly or not as a more almost regressive thing where it was uh, celebrating rock and rolls and like oh remember remember when everything was cool in the 1950s and so yeah. then by, to have a band like Public Image Limited on is pretty awesome because it's 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 not certainly not your normal American bandstand booking I would imagine. And they they got very upset. They got very very upset. Dick Clark was furious. He felt that we had trampled on everything that he built um you know and a bunch of people surrounding him were like, dude, no, this is great. Let this moment happen. And then I, I think uh, I think he grew to either like the moment 
or appreciate the notoriety. Not that he needed any notoriety. But right. But like the sensationalism of, almost of it, like the fact that it's like, oh, this is going to be something that gets people talking, you know, whatever. Yeah, and for, for you know, up until a few years ago, there would be like um, all-time best American bandstand that they'd show on British TV. Mm-hmm. Here's this crazy American show. And my mom and my mom and dad and, and my mom will call me up and be like, oh, you were on the TV again last night. American bandstand. <laughs> like, oh. Awesome. So someone would, you know, the postman would come and she went, oh, hold on a minute. Come on. Come and watch this videotape of my son on TV. That's all. And how, how old were you at that time? That was uh, 1980, right? So. Uh, 21 was born in 59 wow wow and obviously the and if you if you don't mind you know we're obviously already started there but let's talk about how pil kind of came in front loaded in the both a good and bad way just because of johnny's reputation uh because of you know sex pistols being so iconic and uh, you know genre defined in their own way and pil being a completely different beast and right it seemed like, and you have to understand this. This is for the younger listeners. This is an era before social media. Things didn't move as fast as it as it does now. Information wasn't always immediately readily available. Uh, I remember we what, used to read papers. Yeah, yeah. I was. It's always. Just, yeah, I was just going to say that. Um, I mean, I remember when I got the Flowers of Romance record, and I was at first I was really confused because I was like. This is not what I expected at all. But I, then as I listened to it, I was like, oh, but this is really cool. Like, I like that. And then it's something where I probably, no, full on, I got the record because I was a Sex Pistols fan, flat out. And right. that's it. And like, I was su- super surprised by something incredibly interesting that sounded nothing like that and was very, you know, to this day, hard pressed to think of an album that sounds anything like Flowers of Romance. Well, there's, um, it was certainly interesting. I mean, it was strange because John changed his name from Rotten back to Leiden. Right. Uh, if anybody, if an inter- if a poor interviewer said, would sit down with, you know, pad and pencil. Now, I wanted to ask you about the Sex Pistols. No, get out, fuck off, you know. <laughs> right. So, but if it hadn't been for the Pistols, we wouldn't have played to 3,000 people in New York. Right. 40 years ago or yeah. 10,000 people in Los Angeles. And um, it, it's kind of an interesting use of notoriety. I, I think lots of people say, oh, John was had a vision in the studio. He actually didn't. Um, most of the songs on Flowers that I worked on were fully formed by myself and Nick Launay before John heard them or sang a word. He, he didn't coach us in the studio. He'd show up at night. Me and Nick would work all day and he would miraculously sing over this crazy shit we made. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty wild. So, (laughs) But what he did was he he allowed, uh, and that's not the right word, but he enabled, that's a better word, Mm -hmm. he enabled us to do that. He uh, enabled the metal box to happen, which was one song and that was my audition. And um, then he allowed his notoriety to gain the leverage with the label for any other band had delivered flowers of romance or fodder stomp or, or, you know, some of the songs on the first release, they were really being dropped from the label. 
Yeah. And um, it was only four albums in, this is what you want, this is what you get. I mean, that this is not a love song, it was a worldwide hit. Right. But but the the everything was a battle of of us wanting to do what we wanted to do differently, not rehearsing before we went in the studio, not rehearsing before we walked on stage, which is something really? we carried the pig face. Yeah, I mean so so my first show was Boston, April the eighteenth, nineteen eighty. Okay. Before that I one song on the metal box. Then we did the John Peel show, three songs. Then we did um, Paris, two shows in Paris, all great whistle test, uh, pop tones and careering. Um, so two gigs, a radio show and a TV show. And, and that was it. We were on stage in Boston and the next night is New York. So, yeah, we, we didn't rehearse. We, yeah. I mean, was that – I mean, that that's uh, – hmm. Did that just seem normal to you at the time, or was that something that gave you any anxiety? No, I mean, I just didn't care because I started playing when I was nine. So right, sure. When you I started jumped, at a very young age, yeah, of course, yeah. So by the time I get to nineteen twenty, I, I was playing uh, eight shows a week. Um, you know, uh, seven nights, Sunday afternoons, we'd do music to for strippers in the northeast east of England at the working men's clubs. Brilliant. So I was doing eight gigs a week when I was 12, 13, 14. I was really good at the age of 20. and I didn't need to rehearse. I knew, I mean, the songs were simple. Um, uh, John would just kind of, sometimes he'd wait 63 bars before coming in. Sometimes he'd just come in after eight bars. Right. Sometimes, um, sometimes Keith would go up, off stage to uh, get well, we could say. Um Sometimes there will be some interaction with the audience or the equipment or people stealing equipment or grabbing John or trying to stab John that would, you know, the, suddenly the songs are four minutes longer, you know. Because, so, because there's this ob- obstacle to overcome, sometimes maybe physically threatening even. Well, we weren't physically threatened. That's a weird thing. You know, um, we're playing to thousands of people and – that in, in, in 1980, anything to do with rock and roll was bad. So mm. somebody would say, is, is there a set list? And it would be like, how dare you yeah. set list? <laughs> um, oh, where's the security? How dare you secure? Are there any T-shirts for sale? How dare, you know, right, like, right. oh, come on. We could use some security. And I wouldn't have minded making a few dollars off some T-shirts. I did that first tour in 1980 for... 60 pounds a week. It's yeah. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm was way too young to be there, but what I, what I imagined it was, it was like, Oh no, that's what fog hat does or something along like the mindset being somewhere along there. Right. Right. I mean, just, um, what, what are the lights going to be tonight? There's no lights. Right. Turn every light on. <laughs> People were just losing their minds. Yeah. And you know, People who are good at their craft, like give the sound guy a set list, say, look, we might switch these three songs at the end, but this will give you an idea. Yeah. You know, I realize now they could have done their job more and enhanced what we were doing instead. Worked with you rather than working, worked with you rather than just being left out of the process entirely. Right. So, I mean, so would you say that's, 
I mean, that had to be an interesting time as far as just uh, learning lots of different things uh, in in regards to to touring and to being in a band. But for a band that just, as its modus operandi, was convention-defying, not just musically, but in every way, uh, did you find it was often working at cross-purposes like that? Yeah, I mean, a lot. Plus, there were there were substances and um, just stuff that, as I've as I've gone through my diaries and spoken to people, um, uh, sorry, the dog just got out. <laughs> spoken to people about um, their experiences at concerts. I, I don't know what I was thinking on that first tour. You know, four shows in, it was obvious it wasn't going to last very long. Uh, we only did 10 shows and Wobble left uh, Wobble left the band after that. Um, so, I mean, it was doomed before it started in many ways. And I think that I have this, uh, I enjoy writing. And so when I'm, when I'm doing my, my reflections on pill presentation, I'm like, all right, so what if pill was a lasagna? Right. I'm like, okay. Uh, ooh, no, what's, what's inside the lasagna? And Keith Levine would say, well, glass, broken glass. Like, oh, broken glass. All right. Um, Fair. Uh, and, uh, but it's pasta, right? No, it's, it's roofing tiles. It's asphalt and roofing. Okay. But is there Parmesan cheese on the top? No, there's no Parmesan cheese. It's more broken glass and sand. Like, okay, so then it's like, what? can we taste it? No, you can't taste it. You'll end up in the emergency room, you know. <laughs> right, right. I'm going to do something. Let me just do something with the dog. Hold sure, on. absolutely. Uh, once again, for, for those just joining us, we're talking to Mr. Martin Atkins. Uh, thanks for folks joining, joining us on the Instagram Live. This is a brand new experiment. So appreciate you. If you were coming in that way, everyone else on Radio Nope, always glad to have everyone listeners on Radio Nope. And we're back again with Mr. Martin. Sorry about that. So, but, so you, you end up with this insane lasagna that defi- has to be different at every single level. Right. It's like, can we taste it in a restaurant? You can't go to a restaurant. You have to be in an emergency room. It's so dangerous. All right. Can we read about it in a culinary magazine? No, because it's not even food. It's like, uh, okay, it's so different that it could have just been really different and existed in that space. Right. And actually been more. It's like early pig face (coughs) was just, oh, here's an 11 minute long song. Fuck off. You know? (laughs) Sure. And, um, we wouldn't rehearse, but but the fact is, when um, when we did rehearse and we iron out the technical kinks because we were using triggers and electronics and some loops, um, we were better. You know, when we allowed the songs and arrangements to be friendlier, I found we could present harder, more challenging ideas. Mm-hmm. So if if you have a challenging idea, 13 minutes long, and, it, and it's whatever. 
it's, it just pushes people away. To me, the, the, the craftier trick, the more dangerous trick, is to put a commercial sheen on top of some very difficult musical subject matter. And then, against their will almost, people are singing difficult, challenging songs in the shower because you've strategized that. To me, that's way more subversive than just being so obnoxious that people run. Well, yeah. So uh, when I spoke to Jerry Casale from Devo, we were talking about how you know some of the those those Devo songs were so subversive lyrically, but they sound happy or dancey, and it's like, oh, it's about this incredible like depressing subject matter. That if you actually stop and think about it, it's like, oh no, that's a song about you know critical thinking or like <laughs> whatever. And it's like you're you're it, it's I I likened it to. Uh, well, since you had your dog on earlier, I'll, I'll use this analogy. When you want you to give a pill to a dog, you put it like some cheese around it and then <laughs> give it to oh. the dog. <laughs> what? Exactly. Exactly. So, so the, I think that. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say. So did you do you feel that with PIL that so the wrong parts of the process were made difficult just as like a kind of like a exercise of. I don't know, statement of intent or something? No, eh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I think that, um, uh, I think that, I mean, I look at that first American tour and, and it would be easy for me to say, I questioned the, uh, <laughs> the organization strategy. For right, right. But I actually did because I got, with this, there's an interview on San Francisco radio before the last show. And um, I had my own single under the name of Brian brain come out in the UK the month before. And it was, it was in the alternative charts in the UK. And uh, I told the radio presenter before we started the interview, ask me halfway through why I do Brian brain. Mm. Okay. And like halfway through, he asked, why do you do Brian Brain? I said, well, I wanted to do one thing in my life, Steve, that was not a disorganized, mismanaged pile of shit. <laughs> and uh, I ended up rolling on the floor in a fist fight with John, and I got fired as soon as I got home. But, but, um, but clearly for me then, I, I had an organizational brain. Right. And you know, I think my strategy now would have been to say, look, what – We've done 10 shows in 30 days. Everybody had hotel suites. If we did a show every night, if Keith didn't need to be well all the time and find a dealer, yeah. if we could deal with some of these problems, if we did 30 shows to 3,000 people a night and we didn't spend all the money that we made having two days off in between each show and flying everywhere, like if you're going to have two days between each show, if you're going to have two days between Cleveland and Chicago – fucking drive yeah. like what yeah well, why, why? You know? <laughs> it's a very inefficient way of working well and it's well, definitely different than like the model you know the what's the the, the mike watt saying if you're not playing you're paying well that's great that's great but but we could have used we could have created our own leverage and our own independence um, and maybe had our own label you know, I started my label in 88, Invisible Records. Right. PIL could have started this. But to see John complaining in 2005, we can't get a deal. This, the, the business is fucked. No one will sign us. I'm like, oh, this is embarrassing. 
start a label, you king of punk. You know, yeah, it's not like but, it's not like the records are going to sell. You know, like you can make it sustainable. Right. Exactly. And um, but but you know, if I hadn't heard that radio interview, I wouldn't have believed myself that I was so outspoken about the business side. And instead of then having to use John's leverage and his persona um, to have Virgin Records allow us to make the Flowers of Romance, which they hated, um, or, or any... <laughs> right, right. They, they only were in it for the, uh, you know, to capitalize on the, what right. they consider the zeitgeist. Right. We could have we earned our own independence instead of relying on John for our independence, if that, if that makes sense. Well, it does. And it's interesting to me that you would so quickly, even at, you know, a relatively young age, fall into the bringing order out of chaos mindset, uh, which seems to follow through on, uh, with all your work, not just all your bands, but all your work with, uh, with the talks, with the book. I, I, one thing that struck me with that is the, the focus on, on the, uh, on the journey as well as the goal, meaning that doing things as a band to make something sustainable, meaning not getting caught up in the ego trip of things, you know, quit your day job before, before that's a good time to do it. Like marshalling resources, things like that. Uh, it, it came from a very informed place and not in a way that most people talk about that I found. Well, well I, I want to, I want to dispute something you said, like bringing order out of chaos. I, maybe I do, but, but then, you know, this last pig face tour in 2019, I used my organizational skills to have five drummers. Um, you know, right. <laughs> the last two, um, um, Bradley Bills from Chan and, and Danny Kerry from Tool and, you know, you know, five other people playing drums and three bass players, Andrew Weiss from Rollins, Greta Brinkman from Moby, Charles Levi from Thrillkill. I mean, you can... You can use your organizational skills to gouge the room to pour gasoline on the chaos, right? But if it's just chaos, it could just go anywhere. So I, by organizing something, it allows me to then, you know, throw other stuff into it. Like, so the last, the last show we did in Chicago, I even forgot I invited four rappers to jump on stage with us and just jam, okay, you know? Right. Sure. So, so Dirk, I think Leslie Rankin's like, who are, who are these people in the dressing room? Like, Oh shit. They're going to sing your song with you, Leslie, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> and she wasn't even aware that so, was happening. <laughs> no. And I, and I'd forgotten, but, but it was surprised me and it was, it was glorious and delightful, you know? So, um, uh, but but once you do something crazy like that, that becomes your your ceiling. The ceiling becomes your floor, and and so if twenty five years ago I tried to put a seventeen member version of Pigface together, yeah. it, it would have destroyed me, you know. But you do a seven eight nine member band for uh, twenty five thirty years ago, and it's like oh, shit, that was kind of crazy. But I look at pictures of Pigface back then now, and the stage seems deserted. Like, 
what's happened compared to the yeah the the the, compared to the groups that you have as a as a later concern it's it yeah probably seems like a the equivalent of like a power trio by comparison uh yeah and also i mean it's important to to note too and i don't need to tell you this because you already know but multiple drummers is difficult uh, at the best of times, and to have that many, I mean, the one that band I can think of that's pulled off something like that remotely close is uh, maybe Latter Day King Crimson, and oh. it's not. I mean, it's not exactly the same, but it, it's it's very it's difficult to pull off, and it's. I, I'd be interested well, in, to know how you orchestrated that, or to use your term, organized. It's it, that's a really interesting thing. So. Double drummers fascinated me. You know, the, uh, Gary Glitter, the Glitter Band, was two drummers uh, as a big pop act. Um, uh, Cozy Powell, I think, had a secondary drummer for his Dance with the Devil hit that he had in the 70s. So um felt like something interesting to do. You know, um, and Al had me and Bill do that with Ministry, Ministry in 91. Yeah. That's right. And so it's like, okay, and that was the beginning of Pigface. And then um, when I started Murder, Inc., I called up uh, Big Paul Ferguson from Killing Joke, and I just thought it would be just interesting psychologically to work with him because I loved his beats. I had to learn all of his beats to do the, the old songs with Killing Joke, mm-hmm. and that changed, that changed my drumming. But then to be in a band with him, and it was really interesting. Like it was like uh, we played tit for tat for a while. Mm-hmm. Okay, well here's this. Okay, well uh, all right, you know. But then after about half an hour, I just started playing boom, bah, boom, bah. It was kind of like we we got it out of our system and we just synchronized. So I mean, if you're not trying to prove anything, right, right. And listen, you know, so I'm listening to Danny or I'm listening to Bradley or any of the other drummers that have been out with us. Then uh, it, it just encourages, and, and the rest of the band don't know, how long is this song? Is it five minutes or 11 minutes? Let's find out, you know. Uh, oh, my goodness, there's bagpipes. Look out, you know. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> then, then it avoids that worst possible situation of a, a well-rehearsed band with the same set list every night because that's good for the sound guy and the lighting guy. And this is where I go back to agreeing with with PI, early PIL for a bit. Then everybody on stage, is they're just punching a clock. Yeah. you know. And I've, I've been on stage and I thought, oh, if we do an encore, I'm going to miss basic instinct on cable. You know, or, <laughs> right, right, room, right. The I'm thinking about my laundry service, mindset. Yeah, <laughs> room service only goes to eleven thirty. What the fuck? Come on, Cleveland, we got to get out of here. You know, and um, um, and and so I think a lot of this chaos and 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 things changing is just my desire to have everybody when everybody's on stage, focused on the audience, but with their radar on and listening to each other, then it, it, that's a really great thing. It's a really great thing. It is. And I'm, I'm curious, I'm curious to know also, uh, you mentioned killing joke and you mentioned, and that led me to think about, uh, 
you kind of came in at a very interesting time with Killing Joke. It was a somewhat, um, it was an interesting time for the band. I, wh- what was that experience like? Because you're, you're coming in, it's obviously a different scenario than what you've been used to at the time. Uh, what, what Can you kind of paint that picture of what that looked like? Well, at that point, I'd just done uh, PIL. I left Pill um, uh, Christmas, New Year's, 85. And um, and I just gave up on the music business. I think I did my Brian Brain thing. Um, right. But uh, it wasn't until 88, 89, Geordie called me up, said, somebody just gave me a phone number, come to London and join Killing Joke. But it was like... Uh, I'm like, oh, okay, Killing Joke, War Dance, Love Like Blood, Change, 80s. Oh, fuck, yeah, this is going to be great. I had, a, I had a, a few days of like, oh, fuck, yeah. And then somebody said, uh, have you heard Outside the Gate? I'm like, no, what's that? It's their, new, their last album. I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, right. I nearly did that on the plane. Um, I'm just like, what has happened, you know? Um and I said to somebody, I'm like, listen, this is a band. I'm not joining this band. I'm not in the that band. Right. What? I don't know what it's going to be like with me in it, but it's not going to be like this fucking 20. <laughs> sure. No, it's, I mean, it, it, it matters if you, it's like, what's the saying? If you, uh, you can't fly with the Eagles if you're riding with turkeys. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so, um, uh, but that was a really interesting point. I, um, I just married my first wife and, um, uh, my immigration status hadn't been cross-checked by Scotland Yard. Okay. Um, and so if something had happened and my immigration hadn't been approved, I would have been stuck in the UK for maybe three years. And, um, so it wasn't just some kind of, hey, let's see what happens. It's like a really big thing to get on a, that plane, you know. Yeah. And uh, it's a commitment, huh? And it's a commitment too. It's it's your yeah. it's you're you're yeah. going down a path. Yeah. Um, and so, um, I mean, and it wasn't easy. It was it was a a, a war of wills at, at some points. There's a song. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Extremities album, but there's a song on there called Age of Greed. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> jazz came in with these lyrics and it was like, basically he was upset because traveling first class wasn't all it was cracked up to be. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Which is which is the equivalent of the uh, Bob Seger turned the page touring his hard song, right? <laughs> and I'm like, well, who is the intended audience for this jazz? <laughs> right. <laughs> we got we got like homeless, crusty kids in England. Uh, were called, you know, hitchhiking to the gig. You can't stand on stage going first class. Is there, like you're not going to have a bunch of people go. He's right. First class is shite. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, you're and, not going to get a, a crowd so, chant of that going right. <laughs> well, and um, uh, 
and and so I still have, and we used to have pots of tea, like every hour we'd stop rehearsal, and I still have the lyrics, and and I can see Geordie's hand. Where everybody was just writing lyrics, you know, feather the nest and fuck the rest. It became this kind of sarcastic commentary on the wealthy, um, right. but that's what it was like. Um, um, when we did the demos for uh, Money Is Not Our God, we did those with Albini on the tape machine I now have. Um, Shorty just played distorted bass. It's the most distorted. But it was just, oh, this is fucking amazing. Yeah, very rude bass uh, sound, very gnarly. Uh, it's like, bah, bah, bah. you know, that was, it was like Money Is Not Our God. And, um, and Jazz is like, yeah, okay, I've got a song. It's called Everybody feels pain sometimes. Okay. <laughs> no, they fucking don't, mate. I mean, this is not happening. It was like Gilbert O'Sullivan on the piano, right. and um, <laughs> but it was that was just it. It was like just it didn't could fit. not, yeah, right. And, and um, uh, we just could not let the guard down, and and that was so good. Uh, one of the things I did do was I started to manage the band. Was I'm like we've got to get to America. People love you in America, but I I I had three favorite songs I used to listen to, and I didn't know they were Killing Joke. So I'm like, that's me. There's got to be lots of people around America who are listening to your songs on the dance floor. We've got to go over there and educate them. And um, they're like, no, fuck it, fuck it. In the end, I got them to tour the states because I told them about the Miyako Hotel in San Francisco that had sushi on room service and bath, Japanese bathtubs that were neck deep. It's like, oh, all right, let's go to a, you know. But, but at least we were getting in front of audiences and able to try some things out and reinforce um, the direction to go in. And, and that ended up with the Extremities album that meeting, uh, you know, I was living in Chicago, so there's a kind of an industrial music overspill. Definitely, yeah. Um, you know, so um, we we got there in the end, yeah. And all right, so and that's the wildly different experience from PIL. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a very different set of needs and concerns, and it's a very different. Uh, set of tools within the toolkit that are required for that. So knowing full well that a band is more than just songs and playing, it's a group of personalities. What do you feel like you learned the most with, uh, with your time in Killing Joke? Uh, interesting. Well, <clears throat> um, I started a partnership with Paul Raven, uh, the bass player. Um, you know, he, he came into Pigface, um, uh, live Pigface. He didn't play on the, the first album, but he came out on tour with us. And then uh, he was involved in Murder Inc. Um, I learned, reinforced the, the the value of a rhythm section, which I don't know that that really happens anymore. I don't think people understand what rhythm sections are, really. <laughs> um, uh, so that... I, I think I also learned, and I, and this took a while, um, that you have somebody like Paul Raven or Geordie or William Tucker in, in Ministry and Pigface, people that, that 
it, sometimes it's difficult with these pirates. Um, it, having pirates in a band can create problems in an organization financially, legally, in all different kinds of ways. But but that's that's the price you pay for being surrounded by charismatic different individuals that if it wasn't for music we'd all be in jail (laughs) yeah totally uh, so um i think initially um some of this stuff was burdensome but now it's like for me it's like the cost of being interested i think um i see uh what john has done with pil now Mm -hmm. and i understand it he's employing some talented musicians none of them are going to say to john john what the fuck you know because you don't say that to your employer you know and so i guess he decided to trade um uh, ease of use um for 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 truth you know mm-hmm. um so so I, I learned about that and that that's still continuing and as i look back and start to write my what, what you call my memoirs, like, <laughs> along with the me, right. I'm, I'm starting to kind of really harvest the lessons from this as I look back on it with a bunch of people helping me to do that. Well, yeah, and especially with the, you know, you mentioned with the retrospection, like going back and revisiting some of these old times and things along those lines and you're coming at it as you are now and, and uh, with, with wisdom and <laughs> coming at it from a very different position than you were when, you know, you were say on American bandstand at, at 21 or whatever. <laughs> it's different when you, when you're in it. I mean, and I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, all of these bands I've been in um, share a kind of a outside of the normal edginess. Right. Um, a rebelliousness, a, a don't give a fuckness um, that's quite unusual these days. I think I see people being so strategic um, and understanding the business and, and playing a very careful game. Okay. And it's delightful to realize that the careful game will never get you anywhere, you know? Yeah, if you are, it, it seems like if you're not willing to take some risks and take some big swings, then you're just going to move move yourself right along the line towards background music, uh, and 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 not really, you know. And for some people, they're it's not in their nature to take risks, I suppose. But right. it, it it does it does surprise me when people that are in a position of privilege tend to do the safe thing because that's for me that's when you should be doing. Doing the crazy thing, you know, multiple tubas and, that, and bagpipes. Let's go. That's 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 why I, I you know, I, that's my the respect I have for John is that he allowed us to do that back then, and he could have he was offered a chance to start a uh, uh, to curate a reggae label for Virgin Records, and right. he could have just done that and uh, smoked and had a can of Red Stripe and gone backwards and forwards to Jamaica, you know. Um, he chose not to do that. Uh, real, real quick with the disc back with PIL uh, after flowers romance is, is the, um, the, this is what you want. This is what you get. There's a kind of, there's a thing with Keith, uh, the commercial zone. It, it's a kind of a muddled story. Like I've heard multiple versions. Can you, can you give your accounting of what all happened there? 
Because um, this yeah, is before so, you left PIL, of course. So I just, but I, I, I just to, to set the timeline because we're jumping around here. Right. I have all of the I have the cassette uh, backups for seventeen rolls of two inch tape um, from the New York period. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 myth that emerged was Commercial Zone was Keith's version of Pill and what he did with the album. And this is what you want, this is what you get, is what John and I did. The the only problem with that is I think there are two songs on Keith's version of the album, Commercial Zone, that he didn't know they existed until he stole the tapes from the studio. So it, it was just that was where we were in this process. Right. Um, we, we were, um, you know, in, in hindsight, um, playing drums to Mickey Mouse watches, you know, finding rhythms in loops inside of mechanical watches. It was, it was pre-industrial, really. Right. Um, we carried that on. There's a song on commercials on called Miller High Life, where Bob Miller, who was our engineer producer in New York, we'd started to feed the drums through a synthesizer. And like, we would fucking, I mean, we were allowed the luxury of fucking around with all kinds of stuff. And, um, you know, Keith released that as his own. He, d- he didn't even know it existed. He wasn't even in the studio when we did that. So, <laughs> so that's. You know, but it's his version. Um, so. <laughs> right. But, but, but here's the wonderful thing about being 60 years old is <clears throat> if, and I would just pose this question. Mm-hmm. I've done a lot. I put out 350 albums through my label. I taught myself to engineer and produce and start my own studio, which I still have to this day. And I write books and do spoken word and and Wobble does this stuff. And Jeanette Lee is now a co-director of Rough Trade in the UK. And if Keith was the creative genius behind all of this, I think he put out an EP in the last 40 years. You know, like, you know. The body of work stands for itself, right? Well, there isn't a body of work. To fucking the lack pop. of body of work, yeah, <laughs> that's where I was going with it. Yeah, <laughs> there isn't a body of work to 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 balance out a wobbly table at a cappuccino bar, you know. So, um, so there's that, you know. And and at the time, uh, I Keith was one of my favorite guitarists in the world, and I have I've been lucky enough to work with some amazing guitarists, and. Um, and bass players and singers and everything. But, and I, I was just like, eh, I, I guess I just didn't want to say anything because by tarnishing Keith, I was tarnishing Pill or whatever. But now I, I'd see an interview where John or Keith are claiming to have played the drums on the Flowers of Romance or playing along with me. It's just like, fuck off. That's just me playing triplets, you know. Right. Fuck off. You know, you know. So, <laughs> so, um, uh, I, I don't, my book isn't me telling Keith to fuck off. In fact, I spent three hours interviewing him because he wasn't in the uh, the Public Images Rotten documentary and I thought he should have been. Um, so I interviewed him for my book, you know. Um, so, yeah, I don't want to go down a, a, a road of calling Keith names. Oh, certainly not. Certainly not. I just, I'm, well, I, I'm glad you... I'm glad you cleared that up uh, from your perspective as, as with that went. Cause again, harkening back to what I said earlier now, it's hard to describe for, for younger folks who listen to the show that they were just be years, years of like 
what happened there? You know, were they in some kind of fight? Like what? Well, <laughs> and this, I care. And, and so I've got stuff in my diary and I've interviewed, accidentally interviewed people like a week ago, like, Oh yeah, I was on stage in New York and Keith left. He had to go, go to the mug club to get a fix. I'm like, she, like, but, and that was 1980. And so to have Keith be like, PIL was stolen from me in its prime. It's like, you fucking shat on it yourself, you junkie fuck. Wow, see what I did there? <laughs> <laughs> Making news here with Martin Atkins. Well, well but it's, uh, it's, yeah, from an outside perspective, if you can read the signs and if you understand what that kind of behavior looks like, it's, that's, I mean, that's what it looked like from the outside. So well, to me. Yeah. And now if, you know, when I encounter that again, I'm sure it's like, oh, I wonder where this is headed. You know exactly where it's headed. Right. You know. So after after PIL, you, you had a you had Brian you had Brian Rain. When when about you start coming up with what's in Pigface? Is that when you're playing with Ministry? Yeah, it's it's on the Mind Is a Terrible Thing tour. Um, Bill Rieflin and I had to go a distance away from everybody else because one drummer warming up on a practice pad is annoying. Two drummers on two practice pads is beyond tolerance. It's beyond human tolerance. And so we just started talking and I'm like, you know, we're really, this is a great fucking crazy band. We should do, why don't we just do something else? Because um, the, the, that live band, like Ogre, um, mm-hmm. uh, Tucker on guitar, whoever else, Mike Skasher, I think, whoever was, that wasn't the band that put the album before, the Minds a Terrible thing, uh, didn't put that album together. Like, we should do something. And so we decided to do something. I asked Al as a courtesy, because Al had actually put the band together, and we decided um, the day after that tour ended to go in the studio, because we, there wasn't the budget to have everybody go home and fly back. We wanted to just, so the day after the tour ended, we went to Chicago Tracks Recording with Steve Albini and invited the guys from KMFDM to come in. And Esh came in and David Yao was in town with the Jesus Lizard. That's right. I forgot he was on that first record. Yeah. <laughs> forgot all about that. With him. So I knew him. And um, uh, and we asked Steve Albini to produce. And he ended up playing guitar. And, and that was that. And then, and I think that would have been it. But we sold 12,000 albums in the first week, 79,000 in the first year. I'm like, oh, we should do this. You know, and, um, and we didn't rehearse. We just went out and did it. And um, I think decided at the end, w- wow, this could be really good if we actually had some technical rehearsals. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we decided to do. Bill Reefer decided he didn't, he didn't want to carry on doing it. Um, so I said, well, with your permission, I'll, I'd like to just keep on doing it. I'm loving this. So, so we did So the response is good. People are connecting with it. And it, it's, again, it almost seems like it's filling a void for something that didn't exactly exist before, but kind of slotted in very nicely. And then yeah. you're turning it into a different entity, into an entity that's like a sustainable entity that's not like a one-time thing. It's going to be something that happens again that ultimately turns into 
it being like a kind of a mini universe that you created that exists like within <laughs> your your mind and and your and your and your plans. So can you walk us through the path of doing that? I mean, there's so many people involved, very talented folks. Where where do you start with something like that? Well, so the easiest way to start, I mean, I'm sure there's all kinds of pseudo jazz musical whatever arty terms but i would just describe it as a bar or a coffee shop like so you know somebody might meet someone and go hey let's go have a drink at the pub or wherever and i would just say hey you're kind of interesting do you feel like uh doing this pig face thing you know and some people did and some people like uh you know some people would just do one show um but once once the flexibility was established, then it became a yardstick. Like, so, um, Curse Mackey from the Evil Mothers, I met those guys in San Antonio, and, and Curse comes up to me at the venue, he's like, oh, yeah, I, I, I hear your shtick. You know, anybody can be in pig face, blah, blah, there's no bound. <laughs> right. Well, not a stick actually it's like it's that's what it is it's like oh yeah yeah so like my band's next door you know and we could just jump on stage i'm like well what do you do it's like well you know we play we have like five oil drums and we set them on fire i'm like okay get them on stage now you know so, <laughs> let's, let's do it yeah <laughs> so um and then it's like Wow, what's that sound? Oh, someone's playing bagpipes next door. It's a fire station. All right. You know, so I just go and knock on the door because it's like, um, how much more industrial could we be? Like, there's Ogre on vocals with Chris Connolly, you know, and we just done the ministry thing and I was in Killing Joke and, you know, to, to start a show with six guys in full regalia playing bagpipes, was it's a little unorthodox, yeah. yeah. And but then it's like, you know, then some bands would be like, okay, it's bagpipe time, you know. Well, we would do, we would always do that in Seattle and, and Philadelphia. But <clears throat> then, so, then I was at a laundromat in Cincinnati um, called Sudsy Malone's. I know it and, well. Uh, yes, yes. Oh, okay. And here's this band called Roundhead, and this girl's playing cello, and I'm like. Hey, uh, I've loved cello ever since the Flowers of Romance, and um, actually probably since the Beatles days. And um, I've got this band called Pig Face, and now this sounds like I'm trying to pick you up, but I'm not. <laughs> I'd love you, right? In a different sense, yeah. <laughs> jump on the bus and, and come play cello with us. You know, and the next morning, one of the crew guys says, "There's a fucking girl here with fucking cello. What the fuck?" I'm like, oh, yeah, she's playing cello on the tour. <coughs> and, I mean, she was a uh, – Barbara was – she was going to – she then joined the Seattle Symphony Orchestra after uh, – um, oh, I forget what band she was with. Afghan Wigs. And then okay, um, yeah. now she's with the Seattle Symphony Orchestra, I think. But she was going to join us on this leg in early June, which, of course, isn't happening now. And then sitars and the belly dancers and um, – um, uh, a guy in the Carolinas who, like, people went nuts. He's like, he wanted to get in for free. And we're like, well, what, what can you do? He's like, well, I have a shopping cart. 
and it's covered in guitar pickups and Christmas tree lights. I'm like, oh, fucking hell. How much more industrial could you get? <laughs> right, that's and like peak, peak industrial, yeah. Halfway through the show, which is some open air place, he wheels out the shopping cart and everybody's like, oh, this is going to be a, a, we'll never forget this moment of industrial, you know, bliss. And it was the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. I mean, just, <laughs> it's like he had three different pickups. They were just all bad. It sounded like somebody smashing a coffee tray on their head, you know? Well, and that's, so but, that's always the danger, right? What if it doesn't work? What if it well, doesn't but it work? Did. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's, but there's but there's a sound and then there's a spectacle and once people are running the sound in their heads anyway which they do then it's all about the spectacle right so um then we start putting screens in front of the of of the show <coughs> which is reminiscent of of pil at the ritz playing behind a screen and um so there's anticipation and people can't map out the show in their heads you know, like if you see three bass rigs, you're going to be like, uh-oh, there's three bass rigs. Therefore, Andrew Weiss is here. He's going to do this. <laughs> right, but when we put screens in front of everything, and the idea was just to hide all the equipment, but then we started to do the first one or two songs behind the screens, mm-hmm. and people were just starting to fuck around with everything. And, um, and then because when once you establish – methods of working like don't treat your crew like shit um <laughs> what a wild concept <laughs> then i can say to my sound guy hey hey uh nine drum kits tomorrow uh, and he's like yeah what you know <laughs> right right <laughs> just put stereo pairs overhead it's, it's gonna be fine you know and then the lighting guy's freaking out until you until you put a scrim up and it's like two kits then a third kit and the scrim comes down there's five more kits behind him and it's like who cares what it sounds like at that point i mean i mean it honestly just doesn't matter it's the experience you know and then like who from the audience wants to play my drum kit you know like not not stunt kit off to the side but like fuck sit down and play my drums i'm gonna go and get a drink at the bar or <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. played pool with my girlfriend um watching the show and applauded as the band came off i mean that so once you <clears throat> once you remove yourself from that idea of like ooh, they didn't play that song very well it didn't go like the album like which album you know bob dog our guitarist uh used to play with the evil mothers um you know he's become like a pig face archivist. He'll, he'll say that before we do this song, which version are we doing? He said, cause there's four very different versions. You, know? <laughs> you want to make sure he's doing the right one. Yeah. <laughs> it changed over time and it mutated and it became this other thing. And this, this other cool stuff was lost. I'm like, well, put it back in, you know? And, um, we'll just, you know, We'll we'll find re-inspiration in older stuff, but then we'll also allow people like. If, I remember uh, Jim Thurwell from Fetus is like, well, how does this song go? I'm like, I don't know how it goes with you, Jim. You know, <laughs> right? Yeah, and you know, and and he 
He ran on stage, sang a ver two verses in double time, fell off the front of the stage and knocked himself unconscious. And we didn't see him for like, it's a really long show. We didn't see him for like three hours. And, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's terrible, but it's also hilarious. Right. Uh, Genesis P. Orange came on stage in San Francisco with six cassette tape machines. And, and he never, he didn't ask how, oh, how long is this song? Right. He just, just completely his presence with six tape machines and his attitude totally changed what we were doing. And, and, and that sounds like a surprising thing, but shouldn't that absolutely be the case? His pig face. And it's like this pig face with Genesis P orange and Genesis P orange, 1993 was a different art force than, than he, she was at, at the end. Certainly. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, almost mythical status, you know, and just, oh, oh, it's completely, of course it's completely different with him. It would be disrespectful for it not to be. Right. So then, <coughs> you know, um, then you just let that stuff happen. And it becomes, um, you know, Laurie Barbero was at the Minneapolis show. I'm like, oh, you got any sticks? Who no, I just, just had, I had just had on the show uh, about a week and a half ago, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. And it's like yeah, it's just me, Danny Carey, and and Brad, and probably five other people playing drums, you know. And uh, it's like, oh fuck! And it just became this. It's just a. It's a social thing, is what it is. So lot, lots of awesome stories there. Uh, talk to me about with the idea of the like like keeping the curtain up. Was any part of that in response to there being a focus on the personalities? Like, oh, so-and-so is going to be in the band this time, you know, cool. And, like, wanting to, like, see that rather than taking in the group as the whole. Because to me it almost seemed, again, from an outsider, this coming out from a residence perspective or something, where the idea would be, like, you would be forced to focus on the music because you you couldn't gaze upon the, uh, the perceived oh, well, person. So... It was just for the beginning of the show. I mean, right. I get your point, but honestly, I don't know that Pigface music is good enough to have people like, no, forget that Trent is on stage. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I'm a, I'm a marketer, but, but it's, it's weird that like people are, well, uh, is there anybody of the caliber of Trent going to be performing? It's like, well, Trent wasn't the caliber of Trent when he performed with us. You know, I mean, so sure, I yeah, no, I get you, yeah. Cleveland, when he was playing trumpet five years before, I mean, he sold 5,000 albums when he was on the first Pigface album, you know, and nobody got a release for him to perform with them after Pigface. I thought we were doing TVT a favor, actually, when he performed with, with Pigface back then. So it's like when people get all snotty about the caliber, it's like, well, you would have turned your nose up when I, if I told you Trent was performing. Trent who? Where's he from? In fact, Steve Albini said to me, listen, Martin, you're flying this guy out from Cleveland. We could save that $150 flight. I've got a friend here in Chicago who could play keyboards. I'm like, he's not actually coming out here to play keyboard. I think he's going to sing on a song. I mean, fucking hell. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, the whole idea of who's famous and why and who isn't and why 
is, is insane anyway. Well, and it almost seems like the modus operandi with Pigface is a, at least a small tacit abandonment, abandonment of ego for the process of being part of this greater whole. Anyway. Right. And, and that's, that's absolutely part of it. Like, you know, people get used to like, okay, for the last 10 shows I've been doing this, I do this move and I'm like, dude, and I jump and the boom and the, and the lighting. That's fantastic. And there's 1200 people coming to see us tonight, but I've invited four rappers to come and, Bumble their way version of of your song, you know. Yeah, mind and, uh, the bagpipe player when you're doing your move. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's like you know, oh, somebody's turning to me for a cue, and I've given my drumsticks. To my <laughs> There's like some like, random dude playing, yeah. You know, but, but it's like <clears throat> just just as I was saying before, like John used everything about what he was doing in 1978, mm-hmm. 79. To, to to enable Pill to exist in the way he saw it. Just as Trent used everything about what he was doing to release that, that was it, second single, I Want to Fuck You Like an Animal? If Fuck, right. fuck You Like an Animal was the first single, Radio would have said, yeah, we're not fucking playing this. But he used everything, he used all of his leverage to become the guy like, oh my God, he's that crazy bastard saying fuck. He couldn't have gotten away with it as a first single. And similarly, if if you're not doing everything you can and exploring everything, then you're just you're just being a librarian. So it it doesn't it obviously doesn't matter to me if the drumming at a certain point of a show is appalling and out of time. It's like it's not gonna ruin my career. You know, it's not even <laughs> sure. Yeah, no, I get where you're going with it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like it's like oh well, whoa, that was kind of crazy. I might have to come on, run on stage with a trash can lid and start banging some stuff, or or you know, um, or, or jump up on the kit to help somebody out. But it's like there's no once you let go of stuff, the, there's no danger. No, and I think that's that's an important point, and it's interesting. It's interesting they mentioned that too, because it it kind of seems like with the way Pigface runs that it'll never not you know it's never going to be boring. It's never going to be routine. Right. <laughs> and so, nature. so if and I guess then this goes to like my needs, right? If I'm going to have Dirk. Randy Blythe, Leslie Rankine, mm-hmm. Mary Butler, Charles Levi, Andrew Weiss, Greta, Bob Dog, Enesh, uh, uh, Bradley, Curse Mackey. If I'm going to have all these people on stage, I don't want them half asleep. I want 120% of them. Yeah. And I get that when it's like, uh-oh, you know, we're playing this tiny place tonight, or uh-oh, like Danny Carey's here, just to, like... The um, the tingle that went around the tour when Danny said, "Hey, I can't do Thanksgiving. I've got to go be with the family." I'm like, "Oh, oh, here we go." You know, so I can only do Minneapolis and Chicago. When I told everybody on the bus, "Ah, Danny Carey's doing Minneapolis, Chicago," my drum techs went fucking bananas. It was like, "Oh, I felt like saying, oh, sure.'" Never mind taking care of me, which you're actually. 
<laughs> oh yeah, Danny Carey. Suddenly you're at attention. Yeah. <laughs> so there's like four days of like kit maintenance and like. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> drums are ready for Dan- Danny. I'm like, okay. Meanwhile, I'm like, cut myself on a mirror ball. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's like everybody's everybody's delivering their A game, you know. And um, uh, that that's that's why that's why I like to keep it changing, you know. Well, and it's, it seems like even if it's an ever changing one, you have a vision for it, which I think is very important for an operation like that. Even if the vision changes, which it obviously has and should. Uh, well, okay. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now go ahead. I was wondering, you know, you talked earlier. We we touched on real briefly about about uh, Murder Inc. with uh, Jordy and Paul and uh, Chris Connolly. Uh, can you can you speak a little bit to that? As far as was like ninety two or something along those lines, right? Um. um. Well, do you know anything about it, and you have a question, or you just want me to? Uh, well, um, here's here's why I'm here's where I'm going with it. So that's that's kind of you know post ministry. Uh, you've worked with these guys before. Um, uh, well, you you've worked with some of them before, and you're you're making you're making a record. Did you have like this when you play with someone a long time, especially you you kind of get uh, like a sense of how they play and you can predict what the other person is going to do. Did you feel like that was happening with that record or is that something where you're coming out from a more academic place and trying to come something with an articulated vision beforehand? No, no, no. So uh, I was my thing. So it was on my label. So I, I financed it, which was really fucking stressful. Um, <clears throat> I, I had assumed there'd be like five labels interested. You know, we were playing the game a little bit back then and nobody gave a shit. I'm like, it's killing joke and ministry. And yeah. Nobody gave a shit. Like big, and, big um, names. Like it's an interesting pairing. Like, yeah. 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 Nobody gave a shit. And, um, it wasn't, we had to do some dates, a label in England, uh, devotion, uh, music for nations, uh, picked it up for Europe and booked 10 shows. And then, on the back of those 10 shows, we did one show at the limelight in New York and an amazing review in the New York times. And and we got a deal out of it. But in the meantime, we'd released the album on my label. Mm -hmm. And all I was thinking about was interacting the, the polyrhythmic interaction between the kids. And I I wasn't worried about Raven at all because me and Raven were just crazily rock solid. And, um, so, and I knew it was just fucking, it was just really mighty, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so we worked on these, on these tracks. I think, uh, uh, John Bechtel came in, he worked on the Killing Joke album to, uh, he also did some time in Brian Brain to do some looping and it just felt really new and dangerous. And, um, so we went to, we, we rehearsed the songs and the ideas uh, but but Chris didn't do any singing. Um, I didn't hear the singing until like day three of Chris Connolly tracking vocals. Really? Okay. When, Interesting. When so he, so you you had the music. Okay. So you, you you had the idea of like what the music was, but you didn't have his uh, his his vocals as a reference point for a lot of that. Okay. Gotcha. And so when I heard murdering vendetta, don't know the meaning of the word and the word. Oh, I'm like, oh, for fucking he's fucking rapping over the top of this fucking 
industrial metal thing with Geordie's guitar. Like, oh, my God, you know. And um, uh, I had, like, loops and recordings from um, uh, Killing Joke Tours before. We were in a bar in Barcelona, and at the end of the night, the bartender presses a button on the adding machine and it kind of goes beep, 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 like a little dot matrix printer. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, oh my God, fucking do it again. Can you do that again? I had this big binaural microphone and I recorded that and I can hear Paul Raven on the, on the tape goes, saying, a sotto loco, but the, you know, because uh, it's an interesting the- weird rhythm like it's cool it sounds cool yeah, yeah. so I'm like, you know just like i played drums to the watch i'm playing drums to this adding machine loop you know and um i think sometimes me and big paul were like okay here's this like off kilter thing you play let's have it go but 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 so you play the offs and i'll play the ons mm-hmm. which if you do you remember a band called delta five yeah yeah i love the delta five yeah Brilliant band. Okay, well, I dated half of them, so <laughs> so um, they're, they're um, uh, mind your own business. Their first hit single, the bass line was like a disco bass line. Yeah, yeah. What spasticked it out and made it really interesting and angular was it's neither of the two bass players could play that riff. So they play da 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 ba 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 ba, and then the other ba right between right. the two of them, right? So that had already it, as imperfectly as it, it was executed, it absolutely pulled you in with its imperfections, right? Yeah. When the brain just hears uh, uh, <coughs> robotics, it, your brain turns off; it's monotonous. So there was some like pushing and pulling and stumbling. And then Big Paul and I worked on uh, um, the Notes from the Underground album with Big Face, all this overlap going on. Um, but, yeah, when when uh, Steve Albini said, uh, you should come down and hear a couple of these songs, it was just like, oh, fuck, you know. Um, yeah, it's really cool as hell. And then it got interesting, you know, because um, uh, then the other murdering started. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good. Well, yeah, and that's <laughs> Zeitgeist, right? Zeitgeist. Yeah, and uh, um, who were, I, I forget, who was that guy? Um, uh, I'd have to look at yeah. it. Is that Jay Z's thing? Yeah. Is it Jay Z? Wasn't it? Mm. RZA. I mean, because it's, it's all off of the organized crime group, of course, but yeah, you're, um, I'm trying to remember. Uh, uh, this is well. Anyway, yeah. Point of point of fact. So we did a um, we did a cease and desist. This is like three years after the band ended, and right. uh, <laughs> did a, I did a cease and desist because I own the name, and uh, they like offered me ten grand. I'm like, I'd rather just tell you to like fuck off. Yeah, it was and like then, so it was it was like a Def Jam sub sub label. Um, yeah, Chris Scotty founder yeah Irv okay so so i just told him to fuck off i said look i'm not i'm not going to give you permission for 10 grand i'd rather just tell you to fuck off and have you know that i never gave you permission to do that <laughs> well that's gotta be gratifying too uh so 
walk me through your time uh, playing music into getting into academia and getting into teaching people the, the way you do, sharing what you've learned and, uh, you know, dropping science in some cases on, uh, <laughs> on well, folks. What, how, did, how did you come to do that? Because it seems like there's a pretty big gap that I, I am not aware of. So, so um, 17 years ago, maybe, uh, 18 years ago, um, we were doing some fairly large tours, uh, five bands, three buses, 80,000 promotional postcards with 10 different partners, 25,000 promotional CDs, working with Jägermeister, fucking pleasurable piercings, all different kinds of, you know, merch companies, just craziness. And um, so um, I heard about the idea of interns. uh, And I'm like, okay, we, we could, this would be a good place for people to come intern. They'd learn a lot. We're doing things differently. <clears throat> so I went up to Columbia College, Chicago to get some interns and I did a short presentation to the faculty and they're like, fantastic, when could you start? And I said, <laughs> and, and I said, I can, I can put students in my car now. I mean, I can start taking them now. They're like, no, when could you start teaching this? I'm like, teaching what? What are you talking about? And they're like, you should be teaching touring, you know, the business of touring. I'm like, and I left school when I was 16, you know, and uh, <clears throat> and in that moment, I think I had two kids at the time. I got four now. I just thought, what's the craziest thing I could do would be to say yes. And this would be like an interesting little thing yeah. that I did for a month, you know. And, um, and I thought that was an interesting opportunity. But I walked into the first class. And I'm like, okay, just ill-prepared. I had a few stories. Um, what's the book that you're using? And they showed me a book written in 1964. And I'm like, what, what, did the, what the book? How can you pay all this money to be taught from this book? Yeah. So the, the rest of the class screaming at the students to pay attention to their education. And then I started to bring in materials myself, um, uh, you know, logistics, routing, settlements, and, and and that became my first book. And I thought the book was the opportunity, and then that became like an Amazon music business bestseller. Right. And and then I started speaking around the world, which was, that was a thing. I did some very dry speaking. You know, here are, here are my 12 slides. Now when I speak, I'll, I'll go through 160 slides in 50 minutes. Um, uh I, I think I'm over. Hopefully, over the last 17 years, I've become a much better speaker. I'm, you know, on a good day, it verges on stand up. Um, <laughs> right. Sure. You you have certain beats that you hit, and yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. And that's enabled me to have the confidence to instead of writing my PIL book and then going out, I I wrote a frame of it, assembled some clusters of material, uh, and then took it on the road to workshop it. And, and that was just incredibly valuable to stumble into stories and let my mind do stuff like, oh, that's really good, you know. Um, and so um, uh, over the last 17 years, I, I, I went to school, got my associate's degree in audio, my bachelor's degree in uh, entertainment media business, and my master's in 
creative media. Um, and now I write curriculum and uh, supervise the program at uh, Millican University in Decatur, Illinois. And, um, you know, we just, uh, I like to make my classes real. So I have a class. Of course, we run a record label. Every school does that now. Um, but I had the students put a conference together, which is actually May the 9th. We've pivoted to a virtual conference with Lol Tolhurst from The Cure, Randy Blythe from Lamb of God. Galen Lee is doing a, a, a presentation on accessibility. And uh, uh, Wendy Day from Rap Coalition is going to talk with me. And we got like $5,000 worth of shit to give away and do that. We've added additional tour buses to my tours and taken out entire tour buses full of students with mentors and um, supervisors to help them, to guide them through stations of a tour, running merch, uh, being at the sound booth, doing ticketing and VIP ticketing. Um, just using all of my barrier breaking to take it into the classroom and then pull the classroom out of the classroom. And um, so I, it turns out I really like teaching um, and uh, I'm lucky enough to have some people around me who help me navigate the machinery of higher education. And uh, we're about to launch a, an online class in a couple of weeks, which will be informal, but eventually be accredited. Um, that we'll give to high school students as advanced credit. And um, uh, I'll just carry on my punk rock tradition of doing so. So I give all of my books away. I don't think it hurts the bottom line. It just, you know, if somebody takes one of my 600-page books and, and values it, then they'll come and see me speak or they'll buy another book or they'll, they'll pass the knowledge on or do something. So I'm enjoying applying all of that punk rock shit to education as well. Yeah. And it's fascinating because mm. I mean, you've literally wrote the book on touring. Like that's, that's a literal statement. And and it's amazing to me that there are so few resources previously existing to that. And of course there are things that are, you know, uh, um, resources, mechanism resources like you know a book your own fucking life or something along those lines but just talking about the ideas of it it's fascinating to me because it you almost i feel like you almost had to have like <laughs> like what i used to call like a big brother band uh to kind of show you the road like for me that was Babyland, like the the brilliant la industrial group uh, electronic right. junk punk and just be like hey how do you tour tell me <laughs> tell me how you do this because and now it's like, okay, I feel like it's a lot easier and it's, it's certainly easier to book and things along those lines. But I find it so compelling that it's a good idea just to get it all in one place and be like, look, here's a thing that like, if this interests you, like the you know, barrier of entry is pretty low. And most importantly, you can find out what not to do as well as what to do, which is, is really interesting. But it can be really dangerous if you, you, if you have a creative mind and you aspire towards a slightly complicated show you can destroy relationship quick, quickly as an opening band by trying to deliver a better show rather than a quicker more efficient show right Get, yeah. <laughs> you know, we just don't care song number five did you see when i switched to the five string bass no i saw you like 
messed around with the cords and it cost us three minutes. And yeah, now, yeah, so you waste a bunch of time. So, know, so I guess, so, and that's something that I think is really fascinating too, sorry to interrupt, but I think that like the fact that you've, there, there's a focus on things like if you're in a, like if there's a show where there's a lot of bands playing, maybe if there's seven bands playing, everyone doesn't need to individually have their own drum kit and like tune it up and like be dicking around with it and taking their cymbals off on stage and things along those lines. That's like, oh my God, please. Yes. Teach this to the bands of the world. Thank you. And it's difficult. I'm like, hey, look, drummer number six. That this night is not going to be saved by the tone of your snare. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean... We're going to leave if you start tuning your drums, you know, and uh, you, you need to be respectful. And some people get upset with me because they think the best thing they can do to honor music is to be better on their bass and give it their all. It's like, no, sometimes you just need to shut up or use somebody else's rig, but it doesn't have the tone. Yeah, it doesn't, but it's already on stage. Fucking deal with it. But I'm, you know, since 2016, uh, so it was interesting for me. So I came off the road and, and taught it while I was still on the road and then had maybe 10 years of not being on the road while I was teaching. I was on the road as a speaker. Uh, been to Norway five times, Medellin, Colombia, uh, keynoted Melbourne Music Week in Australia. Done some shit, but so I was on the road. But but to come back in 2016 and do one pig face show at the House of Blues Chicago and start to experiment with advanced ticketing, VIP packages, creating value with limited edition seven inch singles that only people with tickets get that are advanced mail to people and then going to meet with live nation. And they're like, well, why would you send two t-shirts and singles to people? You could save that $2,000 postage and give these packages to people day of show. I'm like, well, and it was amazing to me. I'm like, well, one, it's going to create a huge bottleneck at the door. Yeah. Two, who's going to buy a shirt after I give them their two free shirts. Right, that they're carrying around with them too. They're already carrying around merch, so where are they going to go back? <laughs> exactly. What, and what I'm, what I want to do with this package is, twelve weeks before the show, I want people to go, "Oh my God, here's my package." Every person got a hand signed note, a poster they didn't know they were getting, a personalized note, and a handful of candy. And seventy percent of those people spread everything out on the kitchen table, took a picture, and put it on social. Yeah. Which is free advertising too, right? (laughs) It's really easy. It's really, and then we're like, wow. And then, so I thought it would be interesting to use this program. I've forgotten the name of the program. You put in zip codes on a spreadsheet and then it it puts, every zip code gets a dot on the map. So you can go, Hmm. all right, be interesting. You know, I'm sure mostly Chicago people, you know, but when you see this map, it's like somebody shotgunned the map of the United States. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's all over. Yeah, sure. That becomes promotion. So I put that up, and like there was like five people from Texas. I'm like, Texas, fuck you. You know, and somebody's like, San Antonio, that's me. I am that dot. Yeah. You know, and then people from Manchester and London. And so then this becomes a tool. And then I'm like, well, hold on a minute. So many people are coming in from out of town at Thanksgiving. We should do a rehearsal show. People are going to come in the day before. Let's have a rehearsal show at Reggie's Rock Club. And Reggie's, yeah, yeah. Well, that'd be cool. And people, 
I mean, it was it was hilarious because people thought, oh, fuck. They've invited us to rehearsals. This is going to be terrible. They thought it was going to be people like, and then down to the E for the chorus, you fucking idiot. Yeah. And, uh, and then I'm like, well, what do you do on Thanksgiving? And I'm like, well, Reggie's has got a great kitchen with their chicken wings and their macaroni. I'm like, and so I asked uh, Ellie, um, what would it take to put a head to do like a Thanksgiving dinner? And um, <clears throat> she's like, well, we can't do that for free. You know, it was turned out to be like $10, $11 a head. So then because I had everybody's emails, because by buying tickets from me and sending out the packages, I'm like, hey, does anybody want to come to rehearsal? And I can't give you Thanksgiving dinner, but if you want to pay like $11, people were just like, what the fuck? Yeah. And it just started to crystallize this big face family, you know? Right, right. So I'm still learning about this next part, which is kind of like back to the beginning of this for me, where I used to send Brian Brain fans postcards from England, you know, uh, with my PIL book, uh, just as a surprise to anybody who pledged, because that went down the toilet. But anybody who pledged, <laughs> I sent everybody a, a handwritten postcard from Tokyo, you know. So, like, I mean, it was not cheap to do that, and it took me like half a day because I've got a PIL rubber stamp, and it's just beautiful stuff. And people were just blown away. If it's like, well. I don't know what it takes to blow somebody around the internet anymore, but yeah. I know you can sign a rubber stamp postcard and that comes from Tokyo and you, you know, and then you, you get into this other area, like there's a couple of hundred cars. It was somebody's birthday when they got a postcard from Tokyo from me on their fucking birthday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now you're just creating things that people will never forget, you know? So that's, that's what I try and teach now is, how can you delight people? Well, and I think it's 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 also fascinating because I don't feel that there's anyone else that puts the focus on that. And you know, even small things like I I remember being just I found it very admirable the mindset of you you don't really know how to be a band until you could throw an event, and you know like what it takes to make a good event, and you know all of these factors that maybe the more self-involved musician doesn't ever think about you know things like you know is there going to be enough toilet paper is there you know like just these very mundane details and i thought that god that that just was so brilliant because as someone that's thrown a f many myself I, I always get so irritated at people that just don't have like that modicum of, of respect for those that are helping throw it and it's it's between that and the like making it part of the adventure to make it interesting for people that want to listen to your band and, and participate in your band and support your band. I think it's, it's so, God, those are so key. There's nobody saying that. Well, well, thank you. But then there's also this other thing of like, if you invest in your audience, they'll let you slide if you fuck up. Yeah. You know, that's not why we do it, but it's cause it's just actually delightful to like, you know, I, I'm still friends with people whose floors I slept on in 1981. You know, that all of these, um, uh, that's what it is. It isn't like, oh, I'll never forget Paris. Well, I, I won't ever forget Paris. because, <laughs> But it's like, you know, uh, 
so now let me t- let me tell you what I'm doing now because it's interesting. Please, by all means, so, yes. I'm doing this. You can see it. Stay the fuck inside is what that says. Yes, yes. So it's it's a bag. It's a hand screen bag, and I've signed it. So we're sending those to people with T-shirts or coffee, whatever it is, and um, just trying to brighten people's days a little bit. We gave 250 of those bags to Dark Matter Coffee uh, because they've had to furlough a bunch of employees, and they have a fund. And I donated $100 to the fund, but then I gave them 250 of those bags, which they put coffee in because they got fucking coffee, right? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Turns out they got oh, the coffee, yeah. Right. <laughs> you have a beat. Of course, I got a beat, right? Um, uh, so they put coffee in the bags and paired it with my get the fuck out of bed coffee. They sold over 250 of those bags at $50 a pop, right? So we're like, well, shit, that's $200 in an afternoon for me to give them over thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars worth of gross. Right? So now we're starting to fuck with that. I'm doing customized t-shirts for Smalls in Hamtramck, uh, 13th floor in Austin, uh, Bar Sai in Tokyo, giving them these, right? So for just a couple of hundred dollars for me, I'm giving a venue that wants to put in drinks tickets or golden tickets or whatever into these bags the potential to raise two to $5,000 very quickly. But then I took a, a, a leaf out of Radiohead's book and I put four bags, four of these bags on my website and they've got a really nice shirt in so you can pick the size. And those bags are eight, 18, 28 and $108. Pick, pick a bag. And anything over the eight goes to fuel the shirts and the bags we're sending to other businesses. Right? Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I get it. And and so then this becomes a lesson in my marketing class for students. Like, all right, I sold 140 bags in a day. What were they? And like, well, mostly $8 bags, of course. And then a few 18, a couple of 28s, and maybe one or two. Right? We sold uh, 70 of the $28 bag. Um, and we sold as many, 108 as eight, yeah. 21 of each, right? So that makes me want to cry because now this is this trust thing. And um, you've built that trust. The people that want it want it and they want, and it's the engagement is part of what they're, what they're doing with that right. transaction. Yeah. But it's also this other thing. Maybe the trust exists or it doesn't. But it, it exists more once you challenge it. Do you know what I mean? Once, okay, yeah. once you go, all right, where is your trust? Once people make a decision, they have decided that, right? And now we have a different relationship. Um, so that, I, you know, I didn't start teaching because I feel like I can tell people stuff. I'm teaching because I'm still gleefully excited to learn. Which is, I, I mean, I think that definitely shows with, with your personality and how you approach things. And it's something that I think it's actually very brave to come at it from that perspective. And, and I, I think a lot of times when people put themselves off in a way where they are not eager to learn, you know, they want to look like the ultimate authority or something, it just makes them look insecure, frankly. Uh, and that's that's a path to disaster because – 
I tell musicians, and so this is true for educators, if if you're all about your bass guitar, you're all about lead guitar, and you're practicing five hours a day and wondering what would happen if you practice six hours a day, I'm like, there's a five-year-old kid in China who's already better than your level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, right? Yeah, totally. You can look them up on YouTube. Yeah, <laughs> and and the, and and the same is true for anything you think you're an expert at. Somebody else is like doing this amazing thing over here. Yeah. So it's much better to be like fucking hell, Nipsey Hustle, the hundred dollar mixtape, the thousand dollar mixtape, and rest in peace, Nipsey. But like, there's so many amazing ideas that to 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 understand them and and perpetuate them and and regurgitate them is, is what I want to be doing. You know, when I thought it's, you know, I, I feel like you use your platform in, in a productive way too, in, in a way that adds rather than subtracts. And I'm thinking about just like real simple things like, you know, on Twitter, just that, you know, get the fuck out of bed, <laughs> like something as simple as that. And then it's, you know, at first I was like, Oh, is this shtick? I was like, no, no, actually this is, this is smart. Cause if you think about it, you know, Christ, especially right now, you know, people need to have some kind of positive engagement. This isn't necessarily someone trying to get something out of them. It's it's just like it's right. affirmation of a sort, but it's also a boot in the ass. Right. Well, and so I've been doing that for 10 years and um, and that started um, <laughs> because I was I didn't want to be the kind of dad. I have four boys. They want to be the kind of dad who every morning was like, get up, time to get up. (laughs) So I put it into one of my lectures. I started tweeting and then I had somebody do a design like that. uh, Keep calm, carry on design. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's like, there's a logo. kind of Yeah. And then then I've got a picture of me in Madison at a, a a, uh, UX uh, Madison Ruby programming conference. And, um, this get the fuck out of bed slide is like, it's like 20 feet high and I'm standing in front of it. <laughs> right, yeah, and, yeah. So, and I had posters made and then I would say to my kids, I'm like, listen, look, this isn't me being that kind of a dad. This is actually part of my lecture. That, like, yeah, yeah, this you know, is, <laughs> yeah, this, this applies to people that aren't you too. <laughs> but, but, but so, uh, and then that turned into a really successful brand of coffee, you know, which then introduced me to dark matter coffee, which once again, still learning. I went for a meeting with dark matter three years ago. And I remember thinking, okay, I guess we're going to, we'll talk coffee and we might taste coffee. And I just mapped out the meeting in my head and I sat down. It's the first meeting I think I've ever been to empty handed. Normally I've got like, oh, here's a piece of the ministry page. You want a t-shirt? It's my book. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you don't even know what you're going to be walking into in this case. It's not your world necessarily. Yeah. And instead, Jesse and Kyle sit me down. They're like, here's this double vinyl we did with Derek Carter, seven inch. Here's a cassette tape. Here's a beer we did in conjunction with Mastodon. I'm like, this, this is where record labels went. The energy went to yeah. these other places. And I just started a love affair with, with that coffee company. You know, it's just fucking brilliant. So, and I feel like the there's a lot of a lot of people, believe it or not, a lot of people that listen to this show are people that are musicians themselves. They play in bands. And one of the things they find that I find 
is they get a lot out of these conversations, getting context, even for things as simple as how people keep certain bands and projects sustainable, uh, what kind of day jobs do they have, things along those lines. Without giving away the store necessarily with, with, with stuff in the book, what what would you say, what's your greatest epiphany or uh, shared wisdom that you could give to like working bands, like smaller bands? What should they be focusing on? What should they ignore? What are I, they doing wrong? Right. Well, so actually speaking about like not giving away the store, anybody who goes to martinatkins.com, there's a, there's, this site is under construction, but there's a form. You just put in your uh, name, email, zip code, and you can get Bandsmart, which has only been out for about a year, 650 pages of really good stuff, right? So anybody who's in a band who doesn't take advantage of that free download, like just the one... <laughs> yeah, what are you, do- busy? Come on. <laughs> really? <laughs> but, but, so so his interesting stuff, and, and you know, I'm 60, so I've, I've seen a bunch of this stuff. Um, uh, Kimberly Freeman has something called One-Eyed Doll. And um, she was living in a container when I met her, which is like hip LA detective scenario now. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a shipping um, container you're talking about, like one of the ones that are in the, on the boots and stuff like that? Okay, all right, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so she neither had money to make merch nor did her fans have any money to buy merch. So she would go and buy shirts for 30 and 40 cents at the thrift store, turn them inside out and write one eyed doll with a Q-tip dipped in bleach. And I, I was like, Oh fuck. Well, this is disastrous. You know, and she's like, uh, well, how much are you selling these for? She's like three, $4. You know, she's like quadrupling her money yeah, yeah. in her. She's like, fuck. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh Christ. But, She's like, look, none of my fa- my fans are homeless anyway. Yeah. I'm like, okay. But then, so hanging out with Kimberly for years and years. <clears throat> so now, those shirts that she turned inside out, they're now collector's items. Sure, right? yeah. People get all snooty about, like, what was the original shirt? And, like, some of them are worth more than others. And, you know, <laughs> it just made me realize that, artists try and perfect something and so i passed this on to to another artist recently like the bleaching technique and you can use stencils and you can start to splatter things and really get creative with it and and this guy starts sending me pictures of like here's the last eight i've done i think i'm really getting there i'm perfecting this technique i'm like look you're never going to have a bleach stencil shirt Looked like it was made at a professional place. Right, the imperfection's part of the part of the charm, really. And actually, you've made this really uninteresting and crap, you know. Which, but but when you're actually doing it, there's no such thing as a mistake. When you're doing it, it's like if you go to Urban Outfitters and buy a PIL shirt, which you can do, and there's a thumbprint on it, you'd be outraged and take it back. If you get one of Kimberly Freeman's shirts with the Q-tip dipped in bleach and there's a footprint and a cigarette burn, it's like, oh, yeah. she trod in bleach. She trod on the shirt while she was smoking. Oh, my God. You know, it's it's like, it's really strange. There's no such thing as a mistake when you're authentic and you're doing something. <clears throat> so my advice to artists is don't perfect your shit. 
to present it to an audience because unless you're presenting it as you go, you're not allowing the audience to be part of the process and help you perfect this. I'm not saying you need to let the audience dictate your direction, but in the height of the Marx Brothers, uh, they would do four shows a day. They would do 28 shows in a week. And Groucho Marx would say the iterations um, that a sketch would go through in a week, 28 iterations. How long does it take your band to do 28 shows, right? Do you just, you know, once again, I'm not saying let the audience dictate where you're going, but, but use that feedback loop. That's why people are liking Patreon um, is instead of completing an album, and sometimes an album never gets finished, right? It, the the task becomes uh, insurmountable. It just becomes too big to finish. Um, but when it's just a song every month, you can be panicked, you can be slightly ill one month, and something's happened, your fucking car crashed, somebody stole your guitar, thank goodness, you know, um, and you're forced to improvise, and people are like, whoa, I fucking love the xylophone. Where's this xylophone been? Suddenly, your out-of-tune vocals sound brilliant, right? It's like, you just do stuff. And this constant feedback loop of a Patreon, a monthly Patreon, people are finding that really liberating. So let go of your shit. Let go of technical ability. That's punk. Here's a chord. Here's another. Here's a third starter band. That's punk. Just start doing it and let the doing inform and... Don't be afraid to do a potato print bleach T-shirt. Right, which, right. You know, it doesn't, if you're pretending to be Duran Duran, of course you can't like, hey, greetings from Monte Carlo. Here's our potato bleach. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a bit, bit ill-fitting, yeah. <laughs> so, so don't be a Duran Duran twat. Be yourself. Be whoever you are and, and be that because – you know, when people forgive mistakes in a song, it's because they like you. So once, if people like you, mm. be more that person and, and find out where that person is going. That's my advice. All that kind of shit is in, is in band smart. Yeah. Which, I was, was going to say, and it's, you're, you're doubling, you're doubling down on your, on the case for folks to go download that book. Cause I think that's all very brilliant and succinctly put, advice that I think is, is very valuable for folks. Uh, Martin, it's been a pleasure. Last thing, I, I have one can question that I ever ask people and it's, it's always at the end. It's pretty easy, uh, but you can get some interesting stuff out of it. And that's just, why do you do what you do? Uh, well, <clears throat> well, so there's a couple of parts to my answer. <laughs> By all means, please. Oh, so what I what I was as a as a up until 30, 28 years old, I guess, was a drummer. I was if you said, What do you do? I'm a drummer. I've got my sticks, let's go, you know. Um then I was a label owner and a studio cat and a teacher and an author and a, a dad, husband. Um uh, I built a few studios as well, I've challenged myself with that stuff. So I, I guess I um, I try and stay busy and challenged, and um, uh, it delights me to be surprised by stuff. Um, 
it would be easy to say, I'm doing these screen printing bags to help. I'm just trying to help people. But the truth is, uh, I'm, I'm loving the equations of help, like how much it doesn't take me much work. It takes me some imagination and some ideas to help somebody materially get through a shit week. And I think <clears throat> then that delights me that I'm teaching music business, but I'm really teaching brain stretching and pivoting and creativity and, and showing people the value of these uh, solutions. Somebody at Cisco said, a creative problem-solving mindset is a new job security. And that has never been more true. So that learning, the, one of the reasons I'm so delighted when I learn something is like, oh, this is going to make a fucking great class that will surprise the students. Um, so that's why, I, that's why I do what I do. I'm just, I'm just trying to be a kid in a sandpit and get that flow and lose myself in that creativity in those moments and then pass it along. Well, that's brilliant. And I really appreciate your time, man. Thanks so much for, uh, for spending it with me. Hey, thanks. It was nice to talk to you. And, uh, yeah, for folks that just martinatkins.com, go, go get the book and, uh, any, anything else that people should be aware of? Um, uh, they can go and check out these bags on Martin Atkins, big cartel. That's kind of fun. Um, I'll send you a link to our, um, conference on the ninth. Yeah. I'll, and put it, I'll put it in the show notes. I actually signed up for that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, and that's going to be fun. Lol is giving away some books. Um, we're going to give away some, some decent stuff during that, which is helpful. Um, to any of the artists who are listening. I'm also going to be doing some kind of hour-long Zoom chats with anybody who wants to jump on and ask me questions like career advice stuff and strategy stuff. I'm really good at tour logistics. I can save a mid-level tour $10,000 in 40 minutes. Um, so I'll be, I'll be throwing some of that stuff up as well. Brilliant. I, I I really appreciate you coming on the show, man. It's been it's been lovely. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, stay safe. See ya. All right, brother. Bye. Oh, there he is, Mr. Martin Atkins. We are out. We are out of here. This is this is this is the end. Martin Atkins, stay tuned, uh, live listeners. Stay tuned. We've got a um, got a PIL special coming on Radio Note for those listening to RadioNope.com. That was Mr. Martin Atkins. What a cool guy. Can you hear me now? I feel all self-conscious. There's nothing for the people on the Instagram live to look at. <laughs> what a time to be alive. Oh, there he goes. Indeed, Brian Musikoff. Indeed. Musicon with Musicoff. Uh, PIL special. Coming up in uh, five minutes here. Is this thing on? The name of this show is Conan Neutron's Protonic Reversal. It airs on RadioNote.com. Usually Thursdays, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, 6 Mountain, 5 Pacific. As we come to the close of our broadcast day. These days... 
a lot of the time. RadioNeutron.com for the archives. Patreon.com slash Protonic Reversal to get the episodes sooner. Dollar a month will get you there. No ads, no sponsors, no kids. Mr. and Mrs. America, all the ships at sea. Thanks, everyone, for uh, helping out the show and and spreading the word about these episodes. And it's been really overwhelming and cool to be part of the ecosystem. I've got... Thanks. 50,000 watts of power. Shows on YouTube, if that's listening to podcasts on YouTube, is something that you want to do. I want to ionize the air. Anything else? A bunch of episodes coming up next week. Stay tuned. Microphone turns sound into electricity. Stay safe out there. Yeah, as always, take it easy. Out on Route 128, dark and lonely. I got my radio on. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? to my top 10. I'd like to thank our sponsor. But we haven't got a sponsor. Not if you were the last man on earth. She was prepared to prove it. This one goes out to a special girl. There is no special girl! It's the... It's the end of radio! The last announcer plays the last record! The last what? Leaves the transmitter! Circles the globe in search of a listener. Can you hear me now?
really broadcasting if there's no one there to receive? It's the end of radio. As we come to the close of our broadcast day. Radio.